Welcome to the first episode of the Rams Biosketch Series podcast. My name is Joelle Brown, and I am a member of the Rams Research Committee. I am currently a third-year medical student at St. George's University, and I'm doing my clinical rotations in California. And I'm Ryan Pavel, also a member of the Rams Research Committee. I'm currently a MS3 at WashU in St. Louis. This is a new podcast series that highlights researchers in emergency medicine at all levels of training from medical students to attendings. We're going to discuss their paths into emergency medicine research, their ongoing research projects, and exciting new developments in emergency medicine. Today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Bernard Chang to the podcast. Dr. Chang, welcome. Thank you very much. Dr. Chang is the Vice Chair of Research at Columbia University New York Presbyterian Hospital and is an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine with research interests in neuropsychiatric emergencies and clinician health. He did his MD at Stanford and his PhD in psychology at Harvard. After finishing residency in 2012 at Harvard at MGH and Brigham and Women's Hospital, he became to date the earliest emergency physician ever to be awarded an R01 from MIH as a principal investigator. He is currently the principal investigator of two active R01s from the NIH, one on stroke and one on clinician burnout and cardiac disease. And fun fact, prior to medical school, he served as a professional sailboat captain doing boat deliveries internationally. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ching. We'd love to hear more about your ongoing research. Awesome. No, thank you very much for having me here. So if you could just start off talking about those two projects that were mentioned in your intro, what's going on in your world of research? Yeah, so what I really do in the emergency department is I try to walk kind of two interests of mine. So I'm really interested in the psychological experience of patients and clinicians in the emergency department, but I'm also interested about neuropsychiatric conditions. So just a fancy way of saying, for example, when you have a stroke or you have a heart attack, there's a lot of physiological changes associated with that. But what about the psychological recovery of that? And I think that it's important because you see some of these changes both from a behavioral standpoint, but also from a physiologic standpoint. And so some of our work has really looked at the impact of emergency department environment, like crowding, noise, sleep dysregulation, things like that, and how that influences both stroke patients, how they recover after their medical event, as well as like long-term outcomes from that. So building on that, I was also interested looking at it from the environment on patients. I was also interested looking at it from the environment on providers, because we've looked at some of the research with, say, for example, ED crowding and patients, but what about ED crowding and the providers who are there, not just for one shift, but there for like years on end. So the interest in mind with clinician burnout has been, you know, both from a selfish standpoint of like career longevity, but then also the interest in how does this environment potentially help or even potentially harm our long-term as providers overall cardiovascular health. And just to piggyback off of that, I mean, it's a hot topic right now, clinician health in general. You're kind of working on this project now, I think it's, is it one of your current R01s? Yeah. What are you finding currently, or what stage in that research are you at, and what are your hypotheses? Yeah, so the proverbial check has just been cut, so I'll let you know in a few years the results. (laughs) But what we're really interested in is, so I think that a lot of people, both in the lay press and in medicine, and particularly within emergency medicine, has really led the charge that clinician burnout is A, is real, B, is something that is affecting a lot of providers. And what I've been trying to do is really just standing on the shoulder of giants, really trying to build on that and say, we know that burnout is an issue, but what about the possible physiological effects of that? And how can that 
I'm very fascinated by like the mind-body approach and kind of thinking about how psychology can change the body and vice versa. And so specifically with clinician wellness and within burnout, how can that potentially mediate or affect some of our body systems, like particularly cardiovascular health? Interesting. And kind of going along with that, do you see any specific changes that you hope to happen in the practice of emergency medicine as a result of your research? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that some of the pushback that I got back when I was initially kind of brainstorming about this grant, I'd spoken to some of my mentors and my colleagues, and a lot of them were saying, well, you know what, ED overcrowding, it's something that we see across all emergency departments. How can you change that? Or shift work is something that we, by nature of our specialties, what we do. How can you change that? And I looked at some other literature in the occupational world, and one of the things that really fascinated me was kind of the development of smoking laws in restaurants. And what I mean by that is that nowadays, you know, it's very hard. You can't go into a restaurant and light up a cigarette. In the U.S., you know, it's bad news. But interestingly, the history of, like, the legislation for that came about actually from employee occupational health. And what they found was that the initial laws passed for secondhand smoke were not really designed to protect patrons, but actually the employees in the restaurants. And the argument was if we can change some of the behaviors at the system level due to framing as an occupational hazard, perhaps we can change the system. And I think bringing that analogy back to medicine is that if we can really kind of demonstrate some of these deleterious effects of the environment, crowding, shift work on providers, potentially we can then make the argument that it's not just affecting just the providers, but it's affecting the patients and also the system at large. And then we can kind of start thinking about with crowding or with shift work, potentially there might be an optimal shift schedule or a way of the length of the hours of your shift, for example, that that hasn't really been explored from a really rigorous physiologic standpoint. And that's one of the aims of our study. From the standpoint of ED crowding, is something like having different models of surge staffing or different allocations of patients? How does that affect both your perceived subjective stress and also your autonomic reactivity to that? And that's some of the questions that we're going to be trying to look into with this grant. Awesome. I can say personally, I'm very interested to see the results of your research in the coming years as you publish. Oh, thanks. To kind of switch gears, in general, how early in your career did you start thinking about research and get that track of your career going? So it's an interesting kind of like a roundabout way I kind of got into research. I think on one level, so when I was in college, I studied actually neuropsychology and art history. So I had really more of a kind of a fine arts mindset for kind of thinking about issues. I'd actually done my graduate work before going to medical school, and I really was really focused on like looking at philosophy of mind and how mental illness kind of like creates this like alternate universe, you know, or perception of the world. But I wasn't really interested as much in kind of like looking at it from a research standpoint, more from a philosophical standpoint. I think what ended up me getting very excited about going into research was it wasn't until I went into medical school, I had this moment where I had felt, okay, I'm doing some cool stuff. I'm like asking like what I thought were like relatively interesting questions and deep questions, but how actionable were they? How do you translate this into the real world? And I kind of really felt you know, this draw of going to medical school to try to really impact things on a clinician standpoint. When I was there, though, I kind of forgot about research. I wasn't thinking about doing research. And I was actually, quite frankly, intimidated by the researchers kind of out there. You know, I looked at some of these giants in our field who are still really incredible researchers who are mentors and colleagues. And I just thought to myself, there's no way I could ever do that. And I think 
part of it was also this misconception to me of this idea that if you do research, you have to kind of sacrifice your whole life and just focus on just doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. And to a degree, there is, of course, you have to have a dedication to research, but it's this idea of not trying to find like questions that you're really excited about versus like doing a question that say your mentor had. And I think when I came to the realization that research really is exploring a personally interested question and kind of doing it in a very kind of rigorous way that you learn from your mentors and your colleagues, that's what really kind of got me jazzed about research. And that was probably, I would say, like my fourth year of residency that I got really, really kind of excited about it. And then when I started off as an attending, I was really fortunate to have a number of mentors kind of at Columbia who took me under their wing and helped me get me on my way from the research standpoint. So tacking off to that, you've mentioned the importance of mentors a couple of times. Yeah. What advice would you have for medical students and residents looking to get into research? Yeah, so I would say there's kind of different flavors to research. And I think that you should definitely talk to your mentors, like both at your medical school or your residency program, as well as just distributed. I mean, one of the great things now in this digital age that you can have a lot of remote mentoring. I still think personally, nothing replaces having an in-house mentor to help guide you on your way. I would say with mentorship, one of the key things is it's a challenge because on one level, you want to have someone who has experience with the content expertise that you're interested in. But you also, if you're interested in developing along the lines of, I would say, like an externally funded researcher, it's really important to have a mentor with she or he having kind of that experience in that realm, because it's kind of a a different mindset. I don't want to say a bureaucratic learning tool, but it's a group of information that you have to learn outside of just like the science of things of how to navigate both, for example, the NIH the alphabet soup of grants, the whole process of it. It's not very complicated, but a very unique skill set that you have to develop. And having a mentor with that skill set is really, really important to help guide you for that. Because I think you can sometimes find yourselves focusing in on a project that you might be really excited about, but ultimately might lead you to do something, spending an inordinate amount of time for the limited time that you already have as a medical student, as a resident. And you want to have someone help guide you along that process from there. To kind of piggyback off what you were saying about mentors elsewhere, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people involved in ASEP and SAEM, particularly medical students and residents, are at programs where there might not be a strong emergency medicine residency that involves research. I was wondering if you could flesh out that advice a little bit more for those students and residents. What would it look like, picture-wise, reaching out to mentors elsewhere and establishing that relationship? So one of the nice things about emergency medicine is that As a relatively new specialty, we have a cadre of really excellent, outstanding researchers in our specialty, but the overall number of those investigators is still relatively small, small enough that you're about one or two degrees of separation from those individuals. And I think the really wonderful thing is about the culture of emergency medicine is this real focus on sharing and collaboration. So I'll speak from my own personal experience. When I was applying for my K grant, so one of the grants that you get on your way to research independence. Your R01 is in general your research independence, but there's usually the K grant, which is your training grant that's offered by the NIH and a number of other agencies. I didn't know as much at my institution. We didn't have any emergency physicians who were previously K funded before, but I knew that there were a number of great individuals within our national network that kind of was able to help support that. 
And luckily, through organizations such as SAEM, ASAP, these great organizations that can kind of have this network of mentors, I was able to reach out to some of the folks there. Sam McLean, sorry, Sam, if you're listening, I'm going to try to increase your email box right mm-hmm. now. But Sam was a terrific mentor who is based at UNC, and he was actually able to help mentor me from a distance, kind of one of the nuances of both the grant writing prospects, but then also content. Because I think one of the important things as a medical student or as a resident who might be at an institution that may not have this type of background, you want to be able to be plugged into mentors who have kind of this depth of experience as well as opportunities for you. So you don't want to say, for example, start a whole de novo project for two years on your own. It would be very, very challenging from a realistic standpoint. But if you're with a mentor who she or he has an existing data set or they have a small sub-project that you know one of their other investigators is leading but can help you with some of the analysis or help you with some of the data mining, et cetera. Those are kind of you know relatively quick, easy first steps to get involved. And I think tapping into that network within our national organizations is a good first step for that. You mentioned the different types of NIH grants, and I know you have an R01 and you got the K first. Could you maybe for people who don't know the different levels of NIH grants kind of sketch on what you're allowed to do with a K grant and an R01 and just the progression of it? Yeah, sure. So maybe even just taking a first step back, because I remember before I kind of got into this whole business, people were just throwing out all these like, okay, R, you, and I was like, what the heck does that even mean? You know, it's exactly. all these alphabets. I'm still, and honestly, I'm still, there's still some funding mechanisms that are still somewhat mysterious to me. But translated going back to like the whole purpose of it, I think the whole purpose of these grants are to basically support investigators or scientists to do really cool stuff and like help advance, do impactful research. And the funding agencies, not just NIH, there's like a number of different agencies too, they recognize that to get from being a clinician to being an independent investigator, there's a lot of different steps to kind of get there. And they want to try to help get you on almost a standardized pathway to independence. And what the first step is, is A, even identifying, like, okay, I want to do some of this. I'm interested in potentially looking into the research career. And you have to also recognize that thinking about a research career is in some ways like a subspecialty. Just like as an ultrasound trained fellow, you have your fellowship or individuals who go into critical care, you, have, you spend a fixed amount of time learning a unique skill set built upon your emergency medicine training, just like with research too. I do recommend, I am a non-traditionalist insofar as uh, I don't think you always have to do a fellowship after residency to be a solid researcher, but I do strongly recommend getting some formalized education and training methods because just like as physicians, we learn to take a history. You can remember your first presentation as a medical student and how you present now you know, I remember I was all over the place. And now, you know, you, you know, in like 10 seconds flat, you can give your summary and your consultation question to a consultant on the phone. And it's similar to that with research. There's a whole language that's involved, how to write a grant, how to even think about framing a question. Because you can come up with a, you could say, oh, I'm really interested in burnout, but what does that really mean? And how do you hone down? I'm interested in burnout to saying, I'm interested in a specific question that can be accomplish in a fixed amount of time. That takes time to learn. You struggle. If you looked at some of my hypotheses or aims a number of years ago to today, you know, they're very different, you know, and they're still growing. I'm still learning myself. And so the whole point of these grants are that they start off with what they call an F or T grants. And those are really focused on training grants where 
they build into that grant, you get some money from, we'll just stick with the NIH for simplicity's sake, that you get some money from, say, the NIH to undertake some formalized classwork and some training exposure, and you work in general. Actually, you have to work with an established mentor because the idea of these F and T grants are that they help set up the stage for you to start beginning to explore your own investigation. So think of the F and T grants as amuse-bouche, you know, your teaser for research. So you do those grants, you're like, okay, this seems like a pretty cool thing that I want to explore more. Then you spend, as a new faculty, you spend some time either unfunded or perhaps you get a foundation grant, you know, the SAM, EMF grants are really wonderful foundation grants that kind of help get people on their way. And you begin to start doing more what I call the deeper dive. That's when you start really kind of beginning to flesh out your specific research niche. The K really is a really landmark grant because even though it's a training grant, it's really kind of a grant that I say is kind of says that you've kind of arrived. What I mean by that is that you've really made this concerted effort to say, I'm going to be dedicated to being a researcher. A K grant gives a substantial amount of funding to the investigator to really protect his or her time to focus in on research and further training. So in general, it's about 75% of your clinical effort, I mean, of your non-clinical efforts devoted to research. So for individuals who obtain a K, you're usually going to be working clinically not that much, and you're going to be focusing really on developing your research niche. There's different types of Ks. Again, there's so many alphabet suits of this, but just to make things a little bit more like just straightforward, there's like institutional Ks, like a K-12 or a KL-2. Those are usually two-year grants where they provide two years of support for individuals. And then there are what they call individual Ks, like K-23s or k 8 So those are the two really most common Ks that emergency physicians get. Again, for individuals who get that, it's a really select group of researchers because it's really stating that you've now, and K-23s or k 8s are usually for five years, that you spend a dedicated amount of time to developing your research niche. It's a combination of your mentor, and that's really crucial, really having a strong mentorship team, and also fleshing out like getting a master's degree or some additional coursework if you already had an advanced degree to kind of flesh out your research niche. And then finally, you then build on that to apply for your first independent award. And what the independent award is, historically, an R1, most people kind of like look at that as a benchmark, but there are all sorts of different grants beyond the R01. I always say to some of my colleagues, so you can kind of think beyond the R01. I mean, the R01, yes, that's kind of on that track record is kind of the, the first independent investigator principal, you know, grant, but there's different types of funding mechanisms within like that family of grants that you can then go on. And then from there, you then enter the, the proverbial rat race of your own line of research, and then you look for more funding and yada, 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 and it kind of goes on from there. But that's pretty much at least the brief overview of like the alphabet soup of training grants. Thank you. That was very helpful, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of information to absorb, so thanks for breaking that down. Yeah, sure. So to just quickly change gears, we're very interested to hear about your adventures as a sailboat captain (laughs) prior to your current research career. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So... Like I said before, I went to grad school, I did my PhD, and I had about a two-year gap between graduate school and medical school, and I thought about, what am I going to do for these two years? And I was pretty broke. I loved sailing. You know, I'd race when I was in college. I'd done some boat deliveries before, and there was this kind of niche industry, and for those of you who are listening, it still exists, where there are a lot of individuals who will purchase, you know, pretty fancy boats, but 
for whatever fiscal reasons, they'll try to register their boats in other parts of the world, you know, to avoid Uncle Sam. And so they oftentimes will need these boats to be delivered to another country or another island. And so what I would do was I started off like, it's kind of really the apprentice model where I initially started, my first year was essentially being first mate for a captain, you know, a professional captain who did deliveries mostly from the East Coast down to the Caribbean and then to Europe. And then the second year, by then I got my Coast Guard license and was doing the deliveries myself. And so really got some cool opportunities to sail on some pretty incredible vessels. And also, really, I'm a big outdoors person and just being able to, there's pretty irreplaceable the moments kind of you're by yourself or with another person. You're in the middle of the ocean, there's no land in sight for the next few days and you're looking up at stars. I mean, it sounds very cliche, but it's just magical. I do remember one delivery we did in Thailand where we were at anchor, and it was really awesome because the water in the bay was actually uh, bioluminescing. So you could see at the anchor as the boat was going up and down, you could see like a purple, kind of almost like a life of pie moment. You can see like the purple lights kind of like radiating off like the anchor chain. So that was pretty sweet. That's awesome. So Dr. Chang, as we're wrapping up here, do you have any general advice beyond what we've talked about for medical students and residents who might be listening? Yeah, so I would say research is an awesome career. It's something that can be sometimes really frustrating, sometimes be a little bit kooky, but it's something that I just feel really privileged to be in because you get a chance to really ask questions that personally interest you and hopefully interest other people. And you can make an impact both kind of at the proximal level. You know, we make a tremendous impact with our patients day to day. But in an ideal situation with your research, you can make an impact on a more sustained, um, broader standpoint. It's a long road, and it can be very intimidating, and it can be very isolating at times. So, you know, you don't want to sugarcoat how sometimes there are definitely some downsides to a research career. But I would say that the community is really, really open and really warm. And that having gone through the process and having had ups and downs with this, that most researchers have a degree of empathy for fellow early investigators so that feel free to always tap into this network, especially within the EM world, leverage that those societies that you're a part of. Because I think that if you kind of explore a really cool question that you're excited about, there's nothing more fun. Yeah, that's all I can say. Thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it and I appreciate hearing your story. Sure. Thank you very much, everybody.